So tonight we kick off a new sermon series to the first three chapters of Revelation. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Well, over the years, Revelation has always intrigued me, but intimidated me. It has intrigued me because I, I love words, particularly a good turn of phrase. And some of the poetic turns of phrase in, in this book are absolutely stunning and breathtaking. Because John's aim is not just to inform or educate his readers, but to inspire and encourage his listeners. But this book has also intimidated me because, well, it's just different than most of the rest of the Bible. There are these wild and fantastical images of a bearded man on a horse. There's a seven-headed dragon with horns. There are bowls and scrolls and numbers and Old Testament references seemingly everywhere. So without denying the perspicuity of Scripture, that all of Scripture is both clear and understandable, I think it's fair to admit that revelation can be a touch perplexing. And that's without getting into the myriad of opinions and views on how to interpret the revelation. G.K. Chesterton once quipped, though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. The imagery of revelation can be dense. The Old Testament references can be many. But tonight, I would simply challenge us to grapple with this text for what it is. A letter written by a loving pastor to a discouraged church, to equip them, to encourage them as they seek to endure and endeavor on in this life of faith. Because just as Jesus says in John 16, 33... In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, trouble, ordeals, struggles, they come for us all, and perhaps they've come for you in recent days. For in a sinful and broken world, none of us can make it through unscathed. We will all have burdens to bear. Sorrows to shoulder and wounds that warp our lives, our dreams, and our days in ways we would have never imagined. And in those moments of discouragement, in those moments of disheartenment and distress or even dread, the question is how can we take heart? Well, we can look to Jesus. We look to the author and the perfecter of our faith. We look to the one who can do far more abundantly than all we ask for or imagine. But the question remains, what will we see if and when we look to Jesus? What will we see? What will we behold? Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon 
take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first born of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, of, a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those that pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Well, there are three things I want us to see from our text this evening. The goal of Revelation, the guarantee of Revelation, and worshiping the God of Revelation. The goal of Revelation, we see this in verses 1 and 2. Well, this word, Revelation, is the Greek word apocalypsis. And it's where we get our word for apocalypse, which typically refers to the end of the world as we know it. And I mention this because when it comes to this Greek word, apocalypsis, we've got some cultural baggage to unwind or perhaps even, I don't know, leave behind. For in our culture, it's a word that has connotations of the great unknown, a conundrum wrapped in an enigma that's been shrouded by a mystery and perhaps about five or six really bad movies. In the Greek, apocalypse simply means to reveal, to unveil, to pull back the curtain, to break through, to lift the lid. Rather than seeking to hide or to confuse something, this word, this book, is instead meant to show us something, to make something clear, to make something known to us that we couldn't have seen before. Something that would compel us. Something that would encourage us and fortify us in our faith. To help us to know that there is more happening in this world and in our lives than our eyes can see and our senses can perceive. Revelation's aim is then to reveal, not to conceal. It is a revelation explicitly given to us by our God. A revelation given to us in order to crack open eternity, to crack open the heavens and to enable us to see the warp and the woof of our lives through a transcendent perspective. The perspective of the sovereign God of the universe. 
Friends, Revelation is a book far more concerned about how we live and how we navigate our way through our days in light of the present and the future glory that has been unveiled for us. Because life in this world is hard. Some days taking the next step is not as simple as it sounds. We admire and we aim for resilience, but it can come at quite the cost for us. And even for the churches that we find in this book, and as we will see in the coming months, these seven churches are facing problems of all kinds. Problems, the genesis of which are eerily similar to our own. Some of these churches are facing the fires of persecution. Some of them are facing the wiles of seduction. And still others facing the tricky deceptions of false teachers arising from out of their own ranks. So whether by persecution, seduction, or deception, each of these churches needs to remember. They need to see that not all is as it seems. That they need to behold their great and glorious God and worship him for the body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it for thy courts above. So we need God's comfort from Revelation. We need to see that Revelation is not most concerned with predicting the future, but about comforting us and confronting us with it. It's the unveiling that our God is the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, the God who is and who, the God who was and the God who is to come, a God whose past, present, and future reign and rule over all things has never been in doubt and never will be because he's the God who wins. And if God's reign and his rule is secure, past, present, and future, so too are we, his people, safe and secure in his everlasting arms, which is the news that we need to hear and the reality that we need to ever behold because it puts before us something so compelling that we might never grow weary of doing good of living for our God. Because living God's way in God's world is costly. But it's worth it. Brothers and sisters, all is not as it seems. But how then are we to live in light of this glorious reality, which takes us to our second point, the guarantee of revelation. Have a look down to verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Amidst all of the suffering, amidst all the persecution, amidst all the seductions of this world, in our weaker moments, perhaps a question can arise. Is all of this really worth it? Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart, that while his yoke may be easy and his burden light, Yet in this life, as we've said, we will have trouble. In part because we have been called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow after Jesus. 
our Savior, whom was crucified. We've been called to be living sacrifices. We've been called to be elect exiles. We've been called to put off and to put on and to put to death that which is worldly within us. The hard reality is that the everyday of the Christian life is not easy peasy lemon squeezy. We have real struggles, real doubts, real disappointments, and real discouragements. Yet one of the themes of Revelation is that the life, the journey, and the struggle of faith is a blessed one. That under the sun there is no better way of life. That in Christ we have discovered the truly blessed life, the pearl of greatest consequence. So let us courageously continue in faith. Let us patiently endure through suffering, through temptation, and through toil. For the journey of following Jesus, the one who will bring us all the way home to the end, is well worth it. Because in enduring, we will discover the truly blessed life. The book of Revelation contains seven statements of blessing, and seven represents completeness, fullness, or wholeness. So one of the themes of Revelation is that the blessed life is found in the enduring life. So how do we enjoy the blessings of this blessed life here and now? Well, our text tells us we read and we heed the book of Revelation. So rather than a book to avoid, a book to be intimidated by, Revelation was intended to be a blessing to those who read it and who heed it. The truth Revelation reveals should guide us and should compel us in our lives. But what truth does it reveal? To quote one famous commentator on Revelation, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in the law and the prophet, the gospel and epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. It is a striking thing to me that of all the ways the Bible could have concluded, that it concludes with what is functionally a picture book. As the father of a near two-year-old, guess what I read a lot of? Picture books. And there is little in this world that is more fun and or exciting to watch then my little girl's eyes light up with wonder and excitement as she turns to a new page in a picture book. And as she turns and she looks and she takes it all in, she says, wow. Brothers and sisters, that's the guarantee of Revelation. The wow factor. The wow factor of our God. That we will behold him. So then with wonder in our eyes, 
and a worshipful joy in our hearts declare, wow. Which leads us to our third point, worshiping the God of Revelation. Well, one of the central themes in Revelation is worship. Because faithful resilience and patient endurance both fuels and is fueled by the worship of the one true God. Because we are by our natures worshipers. We were made to worship God, our creator. But as sin entered into the world and fractured every bit of it, in our sin, we oftentimes worship the created rather than the creator. So part of the wonder of Revelation is the God that it it unveils to us. The God it calls us to behold and to worship. Have a look down to verses 4 through 8. And in these passages, this is a treasure trove of hope and encouragement about the nature and character of our God. Because John just seems to reach up into the treasure chest of heaven, grab a whole heaping handful of treasure, and plop it down on the pages. We could literally do a whole sermon series on just these phrases and passages looking at the Old Testament significance of the God who is and who was and who is to come. Jesus as the faithful witness. Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty. And on and on we could go. Because the more you dig into these passages, the more you will find out about who our God is. And the great and glorious hope that is ours as his people. Which reveals that the God we worship is a God who is bigger. That he's a God who is greater than anything we could have ever imagined. That he is far greater than we could have ever imagined him to be. Which is incredibly good news. When life bumps us up against trials, trials like cancer, a tragic accident, infertility, addiction, the NICU, wayward children, besetting sins, messy relationships, broken marriages, broken bodies, and so much more. Because those things seem so large. They can loom so heavily over our lives. It is in verses like these that our God invites us to set up camp. To get some dirt under our fingernails and to dig down deep into his word. So that we can discover for ourselves the greatness, the grandeur, and the glory of our God. That though our pain be great, our God is greater still. So we lift our drooping hands and we worship him amidst both our joy and sorrow. Our struggles, our victories and our laments, our triumphs and our struggles. Because our God is greater than we could have ever possibly imagined. And he's greater because he is, as we see in verse 4, the God of grace and peace. Now, it can be easy to just sprint right past these two words, grace and peace. 
They are, after all, a fairly common and ordinary salutation or greeting found in the New Testament letters. Yet, friends, there's something extraordinary about this seemingly ordinary greeting. Namely, that the eternal and the unchanging God has given us, has blessed our lives with, has fulfilled his promises by giving us his grace and his peace. His grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, his wondrous favor bestowed upon those who don't deserve it, and his peace. The peace, the shalom, the wholeness of his presence at work in our lives. And this grace and this peace is an abiding gift that has, per our passage, been provided by our Heavenly Father. It is a grace and peace that is dispensed to us. It has been given to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the seven spirits before his throne. And it is a grace and peace that has been merited for us, earned not by us, but for us through the life of death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. Brothers and sisters, sickness and suffering, heartaches and disappointments, toils and temptations, fears and worries, all of these things and many more are are all a heart-wrenching part of our ordinary lives in this broken world. But in Christ, so too is God's grace and peace. For the triune God has stooped and swooped low to bring the extraordinary, his grace and his peace, to make it an ordinary part of our lives. That we might live our lives not in the shadows of our struggles and our doubts, but in the shadow of his wings. Knowing that surely goodness and mercy shall follow us because his grace and his peace reign over us all the days of our lives. So he is the God of grace and peace. But he's also the king who has come and who comes again. Verses 5 through 7 speak of Jesus, the one who loves us, and because of that love, who has freed us, who has loosed us from the weight, debt, and slavery of our sin. The blood of Christ doesn't just cleanse us of all unrighteousness, it frees us, it looses us because He took our sin, He took our debt and our shame upon Himself. So that clothed in his righteous robes, we could be ushered by his grace into the kingdom of God. To be his people. A people that was always intended to be, as Exodus 19, 6 says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A concept, an idea that Peter uses to describe God's people as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And we could do a whole another sermon series in and of itself, with just this turn of phrase. But suffice to say, our union with Christ makes us that which we can never be on our own, a people wholly devoted to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, brothers and sisters, our king who has come is coming again. And we look and we hope towards that day, knowing that he is ours and that we are his. So the day of his coming is a day to look forward to, to rejoice in. Yeah, friends, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this about our passage, that while it contains an abundance of hope, it also possesses a stark warning, a warning for those not found in him on that day, a day of salvation for the righteous, but a day of judgment for the wicked, a day when that which has been unseen will once and for all time be seen and known by all that Jesus Christ is Lord. But friends, the hopelessness of that day is not yet here. No, today is the day of salvation. Therefore, my plea to those who know not the Savior is to look to him, to look to Jesus, and you will be saved. Friends, my hope is that we may together worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness all the days of our lives and all the days of our eternity. Well, to end, let's go back to the beginning. John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but behold, I have overcome the world. And brothers and sisters, what revelation will unveil for us is the reality that that promise is true here and now. That come persecution, seduction, or deception, that the God who saves us will sustain us even to the end. For it is he who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that Jesus is the sovereign one, the one that reigns and rules over all things. That while life may seek to tear us apart, our Jesus is the one who holds all things together, which includes us. Because it is he who is the firstborn of the dead. That because he was raised from the dead, so too will we who have been united to him by faith. And all of this hope is a hope that we can take to the bank. We can bet the farm of our lives, the farm of our hopes and our dreams because Jesus, our Christ, is the faithful witness. And therefore, what he has said, what he has promised will come true. Therefore, let us then endeavor and endure through the resiliency of faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who invites us to look to him all the days of our lives, but who also invites us to this table, a table where we not only behold his goodness, but we will get to taste and to see that our God is good. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for this book of Revelation. And Father, we pray that in the coming days that you might encourage our hearts, that we might look up, that you, that through this, this book, that you might encourage our discouraged hearts, that you might uh, 
nourish us. So, Father, as we come to this table, Father, would you feed us? Would you help us? And would you nourish our souls? We pray all these things now in your son's name. Amen.